Welcome to the Helping Couples Heal podcast, a place for healing and hope for couples impacted by betrayal resulting from infidelity and or sex addiction. Your hosts are Marnie Breaker and Dwayne Osterlin, licensed marriage and family therapists, certified sex addiction therapists, and founders of respective treatment centers in Long Beach and Los Angeles. Marnie and Dwayne co-created Helping Couples Heal, the most comprehensive in-person and online resource for couples recovering from betrayal. And this podcast series is the first component of the program. Thank you for listening. Marnie and Duane are committed to helping you recover from the devastating impact of betrayal trauma and are excited to support you wherever you may be in your healing. If you've lost hope, you've come to the right place. Now, take a slow, deep breath. And let's begin with the Helping Couples Heal podcast. I'm Jane, and this is my husband, John. (laughs) (laughs) Anyway, so we're here to talk about our experience, and we have been together a very long time, and at about 26 years or so into being together in a very, what I thought was a completely loving, safe marriage, there was discovery. And it was devastating and shattered my world and our world and painful and traumatic and disorientating. And it felt like my, to me, it felt like my life was over. I'm an independent person. I'm a smart person. I'm a working person. I have a very big life in addition to being married to John, but it just felt like my life was over. And so we, I confronted John within hours of discovery and I'll actually never forget. He said, we have so much work to do. I hope you want to do it, which Mm -hmm. wasn't all I could say crawled up in a little fetal position on a couch because we were on the phone because he was out of town was how in a tiny baby voice and I don't speak in baby voices was how could you do this to us? How could you do this to us uh, over and over on the phone for about an hour? And I had no answer for that at that point. And um, that was the beginning of our recovery journey. I mean, at first I didn't know there was a recovery journey I thought it was life was over as I knew it and, you know, don't come home and all of that. And we started talking. I immediately looked at resources. I actually called my sister, who's a, uh, she is a therapist and not in this field particularly and out of town. And she flew down from where she lives and told me about a place that deals with recovery. And I went immediately to uh, a thing there that was like, a, it wasn't like a meeting per se. It was a, a support group, a support group, but it was an educational support group. So you go there and this was within five days of, I was lost those first five days. I was just kind of crying in bed, trying to pretend that I had the flu. So my kids wouldn't be too freaked out and trying to pull it together when they were around. And other than that, told everyone I had the flu because I didn't go to work and just would drive around. And I don't even remember, but I went to the recovery place and heard a lecture 
the first day I went, there was an hour lecture and then an hour support group. And I started to, um, and I met other women there, uh, one of which ended up becoming one of my best friends. And 11 years later, she still is. And just started that long process. And unfortunately for us, for me, the first two to four years were really, really hard. And there were okay days, but mostly it was um, seven days a week, 24-7, that this was most of what was going on. Even though I carried on my career, my life, my work, family, it was this. And the despair in the beginning, I was pretty sure that no matter what I did, whether we stayed together or didn't stay together, that my life would never be okay or good again. I was just in such hopeless despair. Part of that was because the, the deep, deep connection and love and 20 plus years of a life I had built with my husband. And there was always, I mean, our love and our connection was always deeply beneath all the betrayal and the hurt and the obviously problems we were going through around those. I did find out later that there, it had been about a nine to 10 year period of betrayal out of the 20 plus. And um, it, the connection was, this is, this is our life. We're going to grow old together. And this was it. And the thought that that either was going to happen, but I was going to hate him forever and always feel bad about us being together and always feel betrayed and never be safe, trusting, or truly feel a clean love again if we stay together. So that's horrible. Or if we're apart, we're going to be apart. I'm not going to grow old with the person that I know I was meant to be with my soul, mate, love, partner. So that was horrible. Jake, could I ask you a question? I was just wondering, like when you say, like in the beginning, so for people who are listening to this, they, they might be listening. This might be the beginning of the journey for them. That at that time, it really felt like it was impossible for this to heal or is that would that be correct yeah the feeling was that this would be impossible to ever heal to ever get over to ever really recover from to ever forgive i remember so that's how it felt a lot over the first handful of years but we did a lot of stuff immediately i within the first week i had that recovery place that had a lot of resources and one of them was individual therapist to work with. And within the first week, I had a list of boundaries. These are things that I need in order to feel safe. And at the time, the first one was, you need to be locked away in a dungeon somewhere for as long <laughs> as humanly possible. That's what I said. I need him to be off the streets of LA. And the dungeon was in Hattiesburg, yeah. Mississippi. Yeah. So, because... I just, I, I knew the first step to this was I needed to get some sense of safety and knowing in, through the discovery, which didn't have yet a disclosure, but had enough information of knowing that there was all sorts of things going on every day in all sorts of ways. I needed, I knew that the first step was I just needed him locked away. I wasn't even thinking about it. it's yeah, go someplace to kickstart your recovery, go to an inpatient. I didn't care if the gulag would have taken him, that would have been fine. But luckily we found 
and he, together we found I'd come up with places and he did. And, and he was, you know, and the that thing was your sister also. Yeah. And that was my sister too. We found, um, because at first there was like places that looked a little like country clubs to me and there were women there. Mm-hmm. I was like, Oh no. Oh, Oh no. My brother, you are not going anywhere where there's any females. Maybe if they work there, it might be okay. And, and prior to discovery, <laughs> would you have ever have had any issues with, I'll just with, say there was no prior to recovery with John, there was no suspicion. I knew that he was out there in the world and did have uh, interaction where women would come up to him and talk to him and whatnot. And it was, I felt a hundred percent secure and safe and not jealous. I'd started as a very jealous person, but after the 20 plus years, he was also sober in AA. So it was a, that was a program of complete honesty and whatnot. So I really felt safe and secure and I never would have thought about it. And I didn't have problems of talking to women or anything. And there was no suspicion. I didn't discover because I was searching or it was, you know, or suspect. So that was the first thing I needed. I needed, and everyone needs different things, but I needed him away. And so some of them looked like country clubs and whatnot. And then we found one that was in Hattiesburg, Mississippi. That was the, that was the epicenter of recovery. That was, um, what's his name was there? Dr. Carnes. Dr. Uh, Carnes was there and I had read like within the first week or so, I had my list of things I need to feel safe, boundaries, because we had also been through A.N. Allen on decades before, I didn't want it to feel like these are just controlling rules. And I had a little trouble with that because it was against my Allen on type ways to write a list of rules. But when I changed the wording instead of these are controlling things to these are the things that I need to feel safe today and they can evolve. So one, his phone was taken away immediately, no computer immediately, find a place to go. And then we agreed on Hattiesburg together. I liked it, you know, that there was, it was really austere and like the rules were, you know, he couldn't wear the kind of clothes and the kind of style and the kind of thing he likes to be and do. And it was really stripped down and it was in this, terrible, austere place, Hattiesburg, and it was just men only. So, and, and we signed up for as long as humanly possible. And then we also, I started, I found Essanon meetings and COSA meetings and therapy. And our thing was really before he went, he didn't go for a few weeks because it was, this is insane, but we have a family Christmas party that we have hosted for at that point for 20 years and I didn't cancel it. So we had the the Christmas party where 50 people came to our house and he left the next morning to go to Hattiesburg. Nobody knew? No, just a couple of people knew. Um, Our kids knew that I was going away. They they didn't know the real details. Jane, did you feel like, because I think a lot of partners struggle with this, they have to kind of keep it all together as they're falling apart on the inside. I was trying to keep it together and I was falling apart on the inside. And then when alone or with certain friends, I was falling apart on the outside as well. We had knocked down, drag out, screaming fights, touch physical on my end towards him. Not too bad. If I swear so many times, if I'd had a gun or a knife in the house, he'd be dead and I'd be in prison and our kids would be in trouble. But what happened then, we just started this road to try and figure something out. And I did a lot of things to protect myself. I'm going to say a couple of things that are very specific. I 
am more of the, the breadwinner in our situation. So I immediately got a lawyer and then instead of a lawyer, went to uh, what's it called? Arbitration. I insisted that we get a postnuptial agreement that he signs everything over. And I did therapy, individual therapy, individual trauma recovery thing, a group of women, group therapy. I went to the Saturday educational lecture and the group on Saturday, and we went to a couples therapist. So there was six days and my COSA or Alan uh, S-Anon meeting and an Al-Anon meeting. So I think there was out of six or seven days, there was at least six days where I did a recovery thing every day. And so did John, you know, and he'll tell you his side, but there was, um, you know, he was doing meetings, you know, he was doing like six, seven meetings a week and therapy and other stuff too. And from there, we found, you know, the recovery community was very strong and we were deep into it. And then we did the, the trauma workshop that this is about. We, we did it, I think it had to have been about a year in. And I wish we had done it earlier. I think it, it would have... More than a year in, I think. Yeah, maybe a year and a half. It was 2010, I so, think. Yeah. So, so, yeah, it was two years. Two years? You had been doing kind of the standard recovery. You had sobriety and you were doing that. And then you started doing this other workshop. Yeah. And that was a, that was one of the turning points. We had had several along the way. And one of the other turning points was after that workshop, I did the TRT trauma reduction therapy group individually. And that helped me so much with everything that would trigger me and all the stuff. It just really helped uh, reduce that. But we, we dove into the community of recovery and took every bit of that was offered. And we were fortunate enough as well to be able to, you know, afford a lot of therapy. And, and we also, we did everything. Affording it. You also really carved out the time from your, both of you had very busy lives and a big family and you made it happen. And I think it's important to say that just because a lot of times what I hear over and over from people is, well, I don't have time to do all of this. We didn't have time not to do all of this. Yeah. Because the pain... Nobody has time not to act out. The pain we were in, the torture we were in, we were definitely torturing each other in the early recovery as well. And we didn't... A lot of the things that I would say and needed in recovery from him, people were going, no, 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 you shouldn't be saying or doing that. And it was, you know, but it was just the way it was. But in those... The first three to four years of climbing out of the despair, what happened for me was, first of all, we both dove into individual recovery as well, because it takes no um, responsibility for his actions and his acting out, but I take responsibility for take, being a part of the coupleship that wasn't working and that wasn't communicating and that was, for whatever reason, part of this and broken. Right. So there was a point about four years into the recovery, he had made some major strides in there, signing the post nut finally, which took a few years. And, and it took a lot of, um, there was a lot of fear on John's side because I was all about, this has to be signed in order for me to trust you that you're willing to do this. It was a really strong one. Basically, you know, after all these years and with big homes and things he leaves with his a few private possessions only. So I needed that to feel that I could trust him. And then I realized, and he realized that it was a big leap of trust 
right. for him to sign that because there was the fear, I'm going to sign this and then she's going to leave me the next day. And so it, it took a lot to come around to getting that signed. And that was a huge leap for both of us. There was little, what built trust over those first four years was as much as possible, John consistently showing up, being trustworthy. And it wasn't always because the last thing to go, they say, from the um, perpetrating addict is the lying and keeping secrets and some old behaviors. I'm very fortunate he worked so hard and he never acted out again, but there was some secrets and some lying and things after discovery and discovery was hard that would come up. But um, at some point it just, and, and there were behaviors where I feel I was testing him a lot and would push his buttons so hard and so far till I got the reaction of him losing his temper. So they go, see, see, that's who the real you is, right. this bad guy. And so we had a lot of that for a lot of years and that was really hard to get over. But at one point he just had a shift and no matter how hard I pushed and tested, he wasn't a bad guy. What was um, the shift? The shift was he, what I had needed all, all along was no matter kind of what I did or said, I needed my husband to say, you have every right to feel this way. It's because of what I've done and I'm sorry. I want to make this up to you what can I do to make this up to you now? And I will spend the rest of my life trying to make this up to you. And I'm so curious, and you don't have to answer it now. You can totally do it when you talk later, John. But I'm curious what shifted for you that you didn't do that, and then you did yeah. do that. Mm. And, and I'm going to finish because I have to leave, unfortunately. Okay. Well, we can do another time mm-hmm. if we want to finish this, if you don't get what you need. But when that shift happened from him consistently for a long time, I started to trust again. And at one point, because I was angry and I was mad. And part of my thing that people didn't like was I needed to him to crawl over broken glass was my figurative <laughs> thing. It's like, you're not crawling hard enough on the broken glass. You're not scraping yourself enough. I don't see enough blood if you ever want to make any of this up to me. And metaphorically, physically would have been good maybe, but metaphorically <laughs> and what happened was at that point in about four years, I remember just sitting in the chair at the foot of our bed and you were sitting there. I just looked at my husband feeling so much love and realizing I have to make a choice. I really have to make a choice. This is not going to be good or happy for me or him. We can't have a marriage in a life where what I want to do is hurt him every day and punish him. And I don't really feel that way most of the time anymore. Can I wake up in the morning wanting him to have a good day? Can I wake up in the morning and do things during that day on a daily basis that make his life happier and better for him as well as him doing that for me? And when that shift came was the real changing point that got us to where we are 11 years in where, I mean, I, I knew I needed a new relationship when this happened. The old relationship had to end, die, bury. And all I can say is I'm just so glad that the new relationship that I built was with my husband. That's awesome. And it was him and it's us. And we're the happiest 
we've ever been mostly over these last seven years since that four-year turn and things are good and we communicate better than we ever did before, better than we knew how. We didn't even understand most of this stuff. We didn't understand the roles we were playing. And what about understanding, really being able to understand that partner trauma component? How did that help you, help you guys? Like understanding how this creates trauma? Well, I think in the beginning of recovery from this, because it's so personal, what has happened to you, it really is all about the coupleship surviving is all about the partners that was perpetrated upon, that was the victim in this in some way, and I use those words, that it's all about their recovery as a form of triage. The first, whether it's a month, six months, a year, or four years, if you're as hard a case as we were, or I was, it's triage. And the sooner that all the therapists and the partner accepts, this is triage. My partner is bleeding out. And unless we stop that, we can't move forward. And it all has to be about what is it going to take to stop that for the coupleship. Separate and at the same time, the addict and partner needs to be recovering himself and working on the shame and the stuff and the core things and whatever has led him to all of the acting out. And he has to be able to be sober. I always say the addict is really tasked with a huge job in the beginning, getting sober, right? And then dealing with yourself after using a a behavior for a long time to cope, right? This maladaptive behavior, but it was your survival. And then having to get sober, deal with the feelings coming up, dealing with the underlying trauma, but then dealing with your your partner who is, like you said, would you say hemorrhaging? Hemorrhaging, bleeding out. (laughs) Bleeding out, right. That is a hard, hard thing to do. And at the time, the partner is not going to have any empathy and compassion for what you're tasked with, right? And it was, it was really hard because any, any time, <laughs> zero empathy for him or any, I mean, when he would be like, but, but I'm doing so good and, and, and I'm sober and I haven't acted out and I've changed all these behaviors. And I go, I had so many analogies. I'd be, it's like you're looking at me and you just had hacked off both of my arms and I'm standing here bleeding with no arms, and you're asking me to pat you on your back. It ain't going to well, happen. Did, I think the analogy was <laughs> that's a good knife out three inches. <laughs> the twelve inch blade is in here. Yeah. You pulled oh, it. That makes more sense. <laughs> you pull yeah. the, the blade out three inches, and you want a uh, you yeah. want a, 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 a metal. Yeah. <laughs> I think it's just hearing you guys talk about it to be able to because I know at those times it is so incredibly painful. But just to hear you right now, to be able to talk about it and look back on it, but with such a different perspective and to really be able to see it that way and, and to, to see the healing that you guys have come through is pretty amazing. I literally oh, have tears in my eyes oh. ongoing throughout this conversation because to, to see you go through and co- what you went through and to come out here, yeah. this is, I mean... It's the greatest story ever. Well, <laughs> That's well, pretty cool. Well, people say, you know, I'm grateful this happened. I will never say that. I am not grateful for the level of the acting out, the deception, the perpetration, the gaslighting. I will never be grateful for that. But I am grateful that we had a traumatic rupture in our marriage 
because it led us to doing enough the work to have so much of a better life and a better marriage and a better quality of life both together and individually. The way I deal with everything in my life has changed through the growth that I've done. And John has changed so much from who and what he was as well. And he, he's still the same person, but he's so, I don't know what the word is, recovered. And do you feel like he's the best version of himself? That's it. You know what? He's the best. Not yet. (laughs) I'm working on it. We're constantly both working on being on the best versions of ourselves. We could be in the best relationship version we can have. And I, I'm so that I'm grateful for. (laughs) We're going, we're moving on up, baby. That's it. (laughs) (laughs) You have to leave now. I don't want to go. It's my turn. It is. It's John's turn. Yes. I don't want to go. I want to hear everything he says, but I I have to go to this thing. I'm so committed to it, but. Thank you so much. I, I think, you know, just for people who out there who are in the midst of the pain to hear that there's, there's something on the other side, I think is just so valuable because it's sometimes so hard to see how difficult it is when you're in it and to know that there is a way out. I said to Jane earlier, I don't know if this was when we were recording, but she was hopeless at one point. But, oh yeah, we yeah, can say, I that's when you that. said that she was trapped. You know, that hopelessness of, well, I, it wasn't even just, will I save my marriage, but it was, will I ever be okay again? Yes, exactly that. I didn't think I could ever be okay again. And all, you know, the, all the stuff you read in the books, it's amazing. I had one of those books of betrayal, bond, or some of them. And I remember having a highlighter. I was going to highlight everything that pertains to us and me, and and the pages got soggy, you know, from yeah. everything. Tears? No, from from highlighting oh, every no. word of those <laughs> books and yeah. ending of a shattered heart, which actually came along a little later. And it was all it, it's so interesting. And one of the biggest educational things was when I went to Hattiesburg and we had the workshops there, family week and the weekend. And one of the first lectures I ever heard talking about how an addict starts acting out or has their whole life acted out sort of and have that propensity and then they find the woman that's going to fix it all and they get married and then they have children and then then all of a sudden they're not the center of attention and the acting out. It was like I was going textbook us. It was so textbook us. It was so clear. This is exactly what happened. This is exactly what was going on. And there was, because so many have come before us, because there's so much work being done, because there's so much recovery out there that if you really go in open to it, you can get the recovery and come out the other side. And there's the individual recovery, the coupleship recovery. And you know, here we are. So I was going to say, you could say one thing to somebody who is in the place that you were in when you were at the lowest point, what would you tell them now, knowing what you know now and what you have with your husband now? I would just say, show up for the work and be easy on yourself and reach out for help and do the work and do the work knowing that whatever the outcome is, you'll be better for it. And I'm really glad our outcome is that we kind of have a really great marriage and a really great life together. And 
I think our kids are healthier and happier because of the 11 years of this different style of living that we were obviously living in quite a bit of um, sickness and illness and didn't quite know it. Didn't know it at all, actually, before. So show up. Show up. Do the work. Reach out. Oh, thank you so much. Show up again. Okay. And, and again. again. Yeah. All right, I'm going to go to my thing. Mwah. Love you. See ya. Okay, so John, I'm curious from you what it was like to hear your wife sort of go back in time and, and tell that story. Well, there's a lot of things. I, you know, I, I, felt some, I felt deep grief for those times that it was just when that scab gets ripped off and it's not just like a victimless crime, which like I as an addict sort of had that like this is in a way it's benefiting my marriage and all this crazy shit that the addict manages to come up with. And it was not just the pain that Jane was going through, but my two uh, daughters, one was 14 and one was 11. And they were so bewildered and, and no matter what, there was no hiding from that truth that I was the one that caused that. Mm -hmm. And that I was the one that, that, brought that down on them. And How I can handle that. I don't know. I well look, I'm really good at dissociation. I actually have been doing that because of other shit in my life since I was a uh, pretty young. You know, I leave my body. And I tell you that that word is used and it's there's a lot of uh, negative things attached to it. But had it not been for that dissociation, I wouldn't have been alive. Mm -hmm. And, but I, I mean, I think there was lots of times where I was felt so out of my body just to sort of like make it day to day, especially before I went to treatment, but it, it lasted a long time. So I think, you know, look, I was grieving then for the actions that I had pulled but also there was a lot of just being numb to the world around me at that point in my early sobriety. And I always, I picked the day that I went to treatment as my day of sobriety. And that was, um, that was uh, December 26th of 07. And it was, I mean, leaving after this Christmas party. And I'll tell you, like, as, as my wife was saying, the first few years were rugged and, we had a screaming fight in a parking lot of a Target. And then I noticed that there was a security guard watching us. And I said, they're watching us right now. And then we went back home and my youngest daughter was decorating a Christmas tree and the cops showed up. And I felt real, I felt a lot of gratitude actually because somebody had reported, like they saw there was nothing physical that happened, but somebody saw something physical happen. And the police separated Jane and myself. And it was just another one of those moments like, I'm like, my God, look at all this. The fight, it doesn't matter what started it, but I'm bringing the cops to my door. You know, or this is as, as the end result of the stuff that I was doing. Here, the police, and, and our daughter didn't see it. 
didn't see didn't him. See yeah, him. they just took us outside and separated us, interviewed us and split. I mean, because nothing had really happened other than we had a screaming fight. But I think it's just, it just shows you how, you know, for people who are beginning that it does can start at this really dark place. You know, recovery sometimes starts there. It's shame, dude. You know what I mean? And you were saying, I think that what you were talking about, John, was grief, that you felt so much grief. And then, yeah. You know. And the shame of all that stuff. And, you know, look, I had grown up feeling ashamed of myself and I took it out on other people, you know, and, if, and I, I want to say the other thing that really as an addict, the most dangerous thing for me to do was, is to feel like a victim because being a victim gives me the right to perpetrate. And the one thing I swear to God, my mind is still pretty cloudy, but as when I was in treatment, the thing that came home to me was that Cartman's triangle, the victimizer, the victim, or the rescuer, those three places, you know, and it's, it's easy to go from one of those points to another. And for me, the dangerous, the, the most dangerous point is being the victimizer. So the victimizer or the victim, the victimizer, but okay. being a victim is the place that is, it funnels me right into being somebody who can make up, a good reason that I have the right to act out, have the right to betray, have the right to victimize others. What was the point for you, John, when you were able to kind of say, I just, I have to just show up and be here for my partner. Like I need to just, I just need to be here. I think that when you're in a a community of recovery around you, which I was lucky enough, you know, I live in LA. And this is this great recovery happening here. And I started showing up and I found people that I really trusted around me. And that I was able to take that knowledge and that recovery back into my house. And I think that's really the deal that, that I was lucky enough to, I think that my sobriety, and I had considerable sobriety in Alcoholics Anonymous. And no matter how fucked up I was and the shit that I was doing and perpetrating, I believed in that. And I, and I had a belief that recovery is possible. And I stopped, I realized that the voice in my head wasn't the voice of God, it was me. And, and then I got to turn that around and actually start listening to other people and be willing to maybe believe something that contradicts my belief system. And that was it, you know, I mean, because the shame that I felt at seeing my wife so devastated was really hard to take. You know, I'll build a wall just to try not to feel that shame. And unfortunately, what that does is it builds a wall between me and my partner. Instead of saying, yeah, maybe you are right. And it touches on such so many core issues and childhood issues that there is, everybody has to recover on so many levels to make it happen, to make it work, you know? So what do you think was the driving force that allowed the relational healing? Because I know that from the get-go, like, you know, like James said, you went away pretty early to Hattiesburg and got into recovery and you never Mm -hmm. relapsed. You had strong sobriety, you were working the program, you were connected to other guys in the program, but you guys were still really struggling. Yeah, we were. Well, I've already said to you that there's, 
I feel blessed and there's something special about the relationship that I have with Jane. Mm -hmm. And she mentioned, maybe it was just that we were too needy and, <laughs> and, 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 uh, and sort of codependent on each other, but I don't believe that. No, there was something specific. There's something she said, else. She said that you had a, a shift. She did talk about yeah. you were able to meet a need that she I had. personally think my shift happened before four years, but no, <laughs> I'm kidding. <laughs> But it well, was at a time that she could you know, be able to see the it. The shift is, you know, it's again like it gets, it got less shameful for me to hear her pain. And also I have experience in the fact that like, you know, when you start learning how to fess up for the things that you've done, actually it's an esteemable act. It's an act of self-love. And so it didn't feel so horrible to come to her and come to her side more uh, quicker. And, and that was, that's the deal. Like it actually was easier to do that than get back in the cycle of, well, you said this and finger pointing and, and making the other person the bad guy. So kind of like that when your shame, when you had more self-love and more less shame of your own, you were able to show up for her pain, yeah. it sounds like. And, you know, so, but like, she's right though. There, there has to be that triage of her issue of that trauma, to, the trauma that would come up and it seems to jump up out of nowhere. You could be having a wonderful time. And then all of a sudden something clicks. What, you know, I, I'm not a big fan of the word trigger, but something activates that. And all of a sudden, though you're miles away, the view is the same. And, and I heard um, our couples therapist said this, you know, because we've been going there and weekly and it was always like there was a lot of tough times. And he said, you're, you're going up a mountain together, but you're not going straight up the mountain. You're spiraling up. So it goes around and around and around and, and you travel miles and miles and miles, but you get to this one point and the view is the same. So that it's like that painful view, but we've been trudging and trudging, but it's that the view is going to be the same, even though you've been, you're on a spiral upwards. Right. You know, and that really helped me. And it gave me that willingness to continue to work and to sort of like lay my sword and shield down. I'm curious, John, when you came back from um, Mississippi and you continued your program here, so I imagine you had an individual therapist and you got mm -hmm. into a group. Yeah. Right? So was this... And I'm still in that group, that men's group. You are. Yeah. And there was people who had like eight years in that group. And I went, those cats are crazy, man. <laughs> and, then, and then I've been in there over 10 years now. Well, and I think and that's I good for it. people to hear too, to recognize that this isn't something that just goes away and that, you know, you get the recovery and then, you yeah. know... Well, my recovery, working. you know, has to do with uh, consistency. Absolutely. So in those early days when you were really getting sober and mm -hmm. doing the work initially, was there a lot of talk about your partner's trauma? Because what you're both saying today is that it took a while to get to that point. In the earlier stages, you would dissociate, you'd build a wall, you would maybe be defensive mm -hmm. or transfer the blame to her, or any of those things. And then you were able to stop doing that at some point. And I know you did do the workshop as well where we were talking all about partner trauma. Yeah. So I'm just, I'm just wondering if you feel that there was more that could have been 
done in the earlier stages to help educate you, to kind of give you guys a, maybe a, a better start at that relational piece? I don't know. I think there's a lot of things. And I think that, I mean, the whole, the way people are treating sex addiction and infidelity and those things, and, I, and I'm a sex addict, there's no doubt about it. The, the way people are treating that now is different than then. I think that, I mean, I'm just coming up with my own take on this, but I think that, uh, I think that like disclosure for us happened way too quickly. And it, I think it re-traumatized my wife in, in a way that had, we had a little more time and, and that knowledge had been present that you're in deep shock right now as the partner of a sex addict. And you have severe, severe trauma and your partner has to learn this and be and be brought to that place of like, look, I heard when I was in treatment, the only thing more traumatizing than a betrayal of that magnitude is the death of a child. So that's pretty clear how disruptive in somebody's life that is. And man, like, I just remember my feelings of hearing that, like, whoa, that's like second only to my daughter being murdered in front of my wife is what I did to her. You know, that's, that's not, you know, that's, that's pretty clear about the level of, of traumatizing that somebody gets. It's like, I think that the person has to really learn to fess up to, to that, to the magnitude of that statement. So yeah, the earlier the addict can hear that and like the addict has to hear it. You can say it to the addict, so how does the addict hear it better? Right. You know, well, it's interesting because you said you heard that when you were at treatment. That's where you did the disclosure, mm, right? Yeah. And then it wasn't for at least a year. Um, well, well, you did don't that. they say that it's like two to four years, I mean, is the sort of rule of thumb. And we're a classic case of that. The only thing I can say is to don't dig in, you know, to, to try to not dig into being right. Yeah. And I, I remember um, when we were talking when we, first, when we first sat down before, and I don't think you remembered this, but what we remembered was how angry you were at the yeah. workshop. But that's because of the fact that you were saying, why am I hearing this now for the first time? Yeah. But what I find so interesting is that you were just saying you did hear it. Well, I did, yeah. But maybe you forgot. And I certainly don't remember saying, <laughs> well, maybe I do. I, like I say, my mind is pretty clouded from those days in, in so many ways. I really. It was like that sort of whatever it was, dissociation on my part or just massive amounts of, of, of shame to, my, to the core of me. It was hard to hear. So how would you describe, you talked a lot about, and so did Jane, about the turmoil and distress and trauma that your relationship went through. Mm-hmm. How would you describe your relationship today? It's so many light years from where we we started. And look, in this day and age, people split up and break up for a lot less reason than what I did to my wife and what we did to each other as a couple. And I learned this lesson a long time ago before um, I got my recovery in SAA. Um, And that was that I'm going to, I could leave my relationship 
and go off and find somebody new and I'd pick the same person. And I would also, I would have to just start all over again. And I knew I loved my wife. Even when I was acting out, I knew I loved my wife, even though it didn't feel that way to her. Obviously the betrayal of that is, you know, and she has that in her past, you know, as with, with her mother and father. So I picked the perfect person to blow up her life in that way. And you know what? And this isn't the first time I've done that. You know, I just, a relationship never got any further than a year before that to anybody. And it was always blown up in a horrible, ugly way. John, I mean, if anybody, once again, you know, these are this, I think people who are, a lot of people are going to be listening to this, maybe in the beginning stages of, of this whole process. What would you want to tell the addict out there who's starting this journey with a partner, what would you want to tell them? I tell them this, it could always get worse. What if if they're listening and they're saying, you have no idea what you're talking about. (laughs) It can't possibly get any worse. It can. It can. Not only that, I, I just say that, believe me, that I don't know if I'm a certified 18 carat sex addict, but I'm a really good one. And I had a lot to deal with in order to recover from this seemingly hopeless disease. And I did it. And it was hard. But it wasn't as hard as what would have gone on had I not been discovered or had I, had I decided to just end the relationship and, and go off and, and just go on my merry way. Because I was pulling shit that was life-threatening to people, to the people I love. So I would say that it could always get worse, but you have the opportunity right now to go through something that's going to change your life for the better. And it requires some, some heavy work, but it's definitely a worthwhile cause. And that's the deal. I mean, to get really like new age about it, you're a worthwhile cause. That's what I'll tell the addict, that you're worth it in order to recover, do the stuff that that people are telling you. And find, just start finding people that you trust and who maybe have something that is desirable for you in your life. And I would ask one last question. In talking about this today, has this brought up shame for you? Yeah, I did feel shame, but it's like, I can actually say that and be cool with it. And I feel remorse and I feel grief. And I also feel totally free at the same time. And it's possible to have all those feelings inside and that I'm able to be cool with them all. You're such an amazing example of recovery and so inspiring. Thanks. I mean it from the bottom of my heart. And I think that um, your marriage as well. But again, I want to, I want to, you talked earlier about having something incredibly special in mm-hmm. the marriage. I think that that's true. And I really want to reiterate that you did a lot of work. Both of you really jumped in and you took guidance from the professionals and, and you did it. And, and that's what I hope that people are able to hear. Yeah, there, you know, it's all possible. Thank you, John, for, for coming on and, and talking and, and to give this voice to people who need to hear it. Yeah. Well, it's, look, my particular brand was acting out with people, but 
we see it all around us, what's, what's out there. And I want to say I'm a big proponent of sex, but just, and, and then it doesn't have to be horrible for the rest of your life. And there's, there's ways to live a fulfilled life. Thank you for saying that. Thank you. You know, I mean, I think it's important that people hear that in this, in the community of recovery. Yeah, you know, it's, you know, I think Dwayne and I are both very sex positive therapists. Yeah. And when people um, hear that we work with sex addiction, I think sometimes they think, well, if you're pathologizing sex, you know, then that well, means. Well, <laughs> here's, here's like, I've used this analogy, if you don't mind me cutting in. No, you know, what the deal is, I think that addicts of every stripe, you know, and, and I certainly know about being codependent. And addicted to somebody or addicted to sex or addicted to drugs and addicted to alcohol. And there's so many of us and there's such great artistry and creativity within that community and people who are, are very, are brilliant people. But there's this where we have all this other shit woven into the fabric of our psyche and our core and the trick is how do we like pull those strands of this weave of destructiveness out and keep that beautiful tapestry? You know, it's like pulling the, the, the strings or the twine out of that and, and being able to continue or keep the tapestry intact. You know, because like, look at these beautiful, creative, artistic people who are around and you hear them just destroy themselves in in lots of different ways, you know? And I heard this, I, here's another thing I remember that they saying that that part of the brain that drives addiction also drives creativity. And so like, it doesn't mean that your creativity is gonna fly away if you get recovery from the addictive side. It means maybe that there's more room for it. Well, well said. Well said. I think thank I've talked so enough. Much. I'm, it, thank you. Thank, thank you. you. Well, thank you so much. Thank you for listening to the Helping Couples Heal podcast, where your healing is the number one priority. If you'd like additional resources about betrayal trauma or to learn more about the workshop, please visit helpingcouplesheal.com. If you are finding the podcast helpful, please support Marnie and Duane in continuing to reach others impacted by betrayal trauma by leaving a review on iTunes and sharing this podcast with someone you care about. Once again, thank you for listening. We're grateful for your trust and look forward to continuing to support you on your journey of healing.